just a few days, I will begin a 185 mile walk that will last roughly nine days. You heard that correctly, 185 miles. Well, why 185 miles? Here's a little backstory. A few weeks ago, right before the holiday break, which didn't turn out to be that much of a break, but that's another story for another day, I was smoking a cigar and drinking some scotch on my in-law's back porch and just feeling very hopeless about the tens of thousands of innocent lives being slaughtered by the IDF in and around Gaza. Thankfully, after some time of feeling hopeless, I started to jot down more ways that I could help. So I googled, what is the length of Palestine? Google tells me it's 185 miles. I thought, I could walk that. Let's raise some fucking money. So after some quick planning and asking some friends and partners for their help, I'm doing it. I'll begin walking on January 15, which was also intentionally chosen because January 15 marks 100 days since the beginning of the genocide in occupied Palestine. Even saying that out loud into the mic to you right now hurts my heart and hurts my soul. A hundred days of carpet bombings. A hundred days of children losing their parents. A hundred days of parents losing their children. A hundred days of being told by Israel to leave only to be bombed on the way or when they get to where they were told to go. A hundred days of journalists who risk their lives telling us what's happening, showing us what's happening, being murdered in broad daylight for telling the truth. A hundred days of us being told by Zionists and propagandists that this is the only way that they can get to Hamas. So I'm going to do something about it, whatever little I can. But Nick, how is this practically going to work? Well, here's my plan, and it's still in development, and most of this is last minute, but here's the rough plan. I live in Manhattan, and for the first eight days, I'm going to walk from the tippy top of Manhattan to the very bottom of Manhattan, and then back up to my apartment in Harlem for a total of 22 miles. Each day, 22 miles. And on the last day, assuming everything goes well, during the first eight days, I'll walk the remaining miles, 10 or 12 miles or so. Now, right now, we are a little less than a week out, and I still have a lot of details to work out, but I am planning on interviewing leaders and influential folks in the city that have spoken up for Palestine and for a permanent ceasefire while I walk. I'm also inviting folks, I'm inviting you to come walk with me for a mile or two, or five along the way. And I'm hoping to wrap up the walk. Again, this is all a rough sketch of a plan because I have a lot going on in life and I'm doing this last minute, but I'm hoping to wrap up the walk with a live podcast on the 23rd or 24th of January, details forthcoming. But you can learn, as these things develop, you can learn more about what I'm planning to do and to keep up with the walk by following Let's Give a Damn on Instagram and Twitter, 
by following me on Instagram and Twitter, and by going to letsgiveadam.com. Later this week, in just a couple of days, I'll have a donation page set up so you can give, because that's what this campaign needs the most. I know that money is tight. I know that your dollar is being stretched. I get it. But this campaign needs money. Through the Let's Give a Damn Foundation, we are going to give all the money that is raised to multiple organizations that are doing critical work on the ground right now. Organizations like the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund, World Central Kitchen, and Doctors Without Borders. Now, I'm going to be asking folks, I'm going to be asking you to consider giving $185, a dollar for each mile that I'm going to walk. But truly, give whatever you can, even if it's just $1.85. Again, follow us on socials and keep checking back at letsgiveadam.com, and we will give clear action steps to help leading up to the walk and during the walk. Thank you so much for listening to that. I know that's not how I usually open a podcast episode, but these are critical times, and I need your help. We need your help. I hope you'll support this campaign. Thank you for listening. And now, let's get to the reason why you clicked play on this episode. The last few weeks of the year were just bonkers. All of your favorite podcasters put out their best of 2023, and I didn't because it was just, it was just crazy. Everything happened so quickly, and then it was over. The year was over. Additionally, last year I published fewer podcast episodes than any of the previous years. Now, don't hear that and think, is the podcast going away? Is it dying? Is it dwindling? That doesn't mean the podcast is going anywhere. It just means that things were pretty intense last year. Having said that, I still had some mind-blowingly fantastic conversations in 2023, conversations that stirred my heart, conversations that got me off my seat and to work. And so today, I want to share some of my favorite moments and some of your favorite moments in this podcast episode. On this episode and in this order, today you're going to hear from speaker, author, and activist Simranjit Singh, actor and activist Rochelle Lefebvre, president of the Desai Foundation, Mega Desai, actor, author, podcaster, and nonprofit founder, Rain Wilson, actor and activist, Patricia Velasquez, and last but definitely not least, journalist, activist, and producer, Noor Tagori. All of these folks inspire me deeply, and I'm proud to call them friends. I can't wait for you to hear these clips. Now, before we begin, a quick reminder, as always, that you can email me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, Anything goes. I just love hearing from you. Hello at letsgiveadam.com. And now, let's get right into some of the best moments of 2023. Let's go. I, 
I'll share two things in terms of where where I've learned to work through this internally um, and and retain this. I mean, this really strong conviction that everyone is inherently good um, is is this understanding in our tradition that we are able to harm people when we don't see the divinity in them. It's not that there's anything in our heart that's impure, but it's a darkness within our perspective. Mm. Like we're just not able to see. And that happens for all types of reasons. And some of those could be personal trauma we go through. Some of that can be systemic or institutionalized oppressions that we then internalize, right? Like why are we racist towards people? It's not because I was born racist. Like I've learned that over time. And that's made it more difficult for me to be able to see the humanity in certain people because they're skin color. In the cases of the people you gave as examples, like power can often be something that corrupts us internally and makes us unable to see the divinity in other people because we are so focused on serving ourselves and, and we close ourselves off to others. So I think there are all sorts of reasons why this happens and it's helpful for us to sort of trace that through. But I think what's actually the most effective method that, that has helped me in these situations um, is, is to engage with the practice of introspection, which is what spirituality has a lot to offer us Absolutely. here, right? Like if I can learn to see how I've internalized different ideas of supremacy or racism or misogyny, uh, then it becomes much easier to see how someone else who I'm otherwise judging like then I'm not judging them as much anymore because I'm like, I see, I see how you've come to be the person who you are and I don't agree with it. I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to fight against it. Like I hate that behavior. Like all of that's true and I can still see your humanity. And like walking that line is so hard, especially when their behaviors put at risk innocent people, including yeah. yourself, right? Like that's, that's really hard. But to, but to sort of maintain that commitment of I'm going to live in a way that honors both. Um, yeah, finding a way to walk that tightrope. I think that's the delicate balance that I'm always trying to manage. I love that. I mean, super helpful, super tangible sort of steps for people as they're observing that. Because I think we all, we don't maybe, so many people don't end up where you've ended up, which is doing the hard work of walking that tightrope. A lot of people just say, Fuck the tightrope. I'm gonna fall off one side or the other, <laughs> yeah, right? Like yeah, I just yeah, totally. I'm not even gonna do that hard work. Cause it's hard because you said it's hard work yeah. to give a damn in a way where you see everybody as having divinity with it within them and everybody being inherently good. I just heard this quote over the weekend that I cannot stop thinking about. Um, do you know who Father Gregory Boyle is mm -hmm. from Homeboy Industries? Yep. Just a hero of mine, an amazing human. And I came across this clip that he was he was doing an interview. And the interviewer asked, is there evil? And Father Boyle says, I believe in horrible because I have eyes, but I don't believe in evil. And homies have taught me that and I can't unlearn it. And the interviewer says, what have they taught you? And he says that everybody is unshakably good. And this next part, these next two sentences were, I just, I literally cannot stop playing them over and over my head and figuring out what the implications are for my life that everybody is unshakably good and we belong to each other. I've learned to stand in awe at what people have to carry rather than in judgment at how they carry it. Mm, yeah. So I hear this on Saturday evening, I run across it, played over and over and over again. Um, 
I sent it to a good friend of mine in Nashville who has this amazing Anglican parish that is doing so much good in, in Nashville for, for refugees and all sorts of amazing marginalized communities. And he says, that blew me away. I'm going to use that to start mass on Sunday with. And I can't stop thinking about it. The people that I mentioned, right, that on the face of it, if you just take their words and their behaviors and they're lying and they're manipulating at face value, I just want to write them off. Yeah. If, they, if I ever got an opportunity to speak to them, I would reject it because of how I might react in their presence. But then you, I read this, I listen to you, and I think about this quote. What does it take for Father Gregory, who has seen some of the most horrific things ever, heard some of the most horrific things ever, witnessed horrible things, for that person to say, I've learned to stand in awe of what people have to carry rather than in judgment of how they carry it. So what would it look like for us to, as we give a damn, as we figure out how do we, in our short few years here, how do we make the most lasting impact possible? It would change everything really to look at Marjorie Taylor Greene and be in awe. And this is even hard for me to say right now because so much of what she says and does is despicable to me. What would it look like for me to be in awe of what she has to carry? What has she gone through? What, what things has she, what ideas and words and phrases and uh, ways of living has she picked up along the way that, have, that are now playing out now in her life as she's a in the House of Representatives? Like, how did she start out versus how she, where she is now? George Santos, someone that, like, doesn't seem like the guy can tell a, a truth. It's all lies. <laughs> but, but, but do you think George started out that way? No, at one point, George was uh, an innocent, good boy that then went through a series of things over the course of his life to the point now where he cannot tell the truth. I feel like it changes everything, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, I, I love that quote as well. And um, what's, what's sort of standing out to me as, as I'm thinking about it is it's, it's essentially a choice, right? Like how do, we, how do we choose to see the world? And, and our gut reaction so often is judgment, in part because that's how we're socially conditioned, like we're taught to judge one another, in part because it's easier, um, and in part because that is uh, an armor that we can put on that feels protective. But I, but I think if we, if we pause for a second and, and sort of look through the cultural conditioning uh, and just ask a really simple question, right? Uh, as, as we reflect on our own lives, um, how do we feel when we're in awe of something? And how do we feel when we're judging something? And like the, the, the simple answer is like, it's the difference between positive and negative. Absolutely. Right, like you can choose, right? You can choose to be experiencing this world through a lens of positivity or through, through the, a lens of negativity. You can have an optimistic outlook or you can have one that's focused on pain. And like, in a context where so often we're stuck in the pain and don't know how to get out, like this is a simple shift that we can all make. And I, you know, one of one of the challenges uh, that people have with this possibility, one of the challenges people often feel is, well, is it? Are we buying into complacency by by letting things go, or are we? Uh, sugarcoating realities. And I, I don't think it has to be either or. Like bo both can be true, uh, that we choose to be optimistic, that we choose to be in awe rather than in judgment and still have a commitment 
to give the damn about having holding people accountable, about going forward and, and moving towards justice anyway. And I think, at least for me, through the sick framework that I've learned, uh, but it's not. I don't think it's exclusive to my faith or even to religion. Like there are all sorts of ideologies that that enable this. Like if you operate from a perspective of love, then justice is part of that, right? Like you have the ability to empathize with someone you disagree with rather than judging them. And you also have a commitment to hold them accountable to make sure that they're doing better so that they can then get into a place where they also have that experience of connectedness and awe as opposed to the, the pain coming out of judgment. In the Tennessee context, based on what I just said, where you can't force change on people, and you've seen that, in the, I mean, you have seen that firsthand in the last few months. If you didn't know before, you know now, can't force people to change. Truth doesn't make them change. Showing up time and time again and modeling what it looks like to live the good life, that's what hope, that, that it might not actually change them, but it's the one thing that we can count on that will over a long period of time do that. So what does that look like in your context? What do you, for any Tennesseans that are listening, what do you encourage them to do during these fairly dark days? And for anybody listening outside of that context, um, here in New York or in other Southern states where there's restrictive laws, um, what can you, what have you learned and what can you recommend they do to not hate the Cameron Sextons of their, of their context and to keep showing up and to keep doing the work when it is so, so, so hard to do so. Rochelle, go first. And then Alexis, anything you have to share to wrap that up? Yeah. Um, uh, I think one of the first things I want to do is I want to just give like a shout out to some of the organizations in case people are suddenly like, okay, like where do I go? Right. Yes, because please. Alexis and I obviously have put our eggs in the rise and shine Tennessee basket. I hope it's okay that I'm going to say it's, it's spelled and it's rise and shine tn.org. That's how you find us. Right. Um, and we are new, we're young, we're scrappy, we're building community. We're one way of doing it. Right. And there is a place for everyone's involvement. Right. So um, other ways. So you can volunteer with us. Other ways to get involved are um, there is uh, Mothers Over Murder. Right. Who've been on the scene um, forever. uh, Moms Demand Action. There's uh, Gideon's Army, which brings resources and support to the the families of victims of gun violence. Right. And works in the communities. Um, if LGBTQIA plus rights is at the forefront for you in Tennessee, there's the Tennessee Equality Project, there's Inclusion Tennessee, there's PFLAG um, has a, a presence here, right? Um, so a quick Google will give you lots of organizations. Uh, did I say Moms Demand Action? Like lots of organizations, depending on you know where your heart is at and where your core values lie. Um, and I hope I'm not going to steal Alexis's answer here. I probably am a little bit because I got it from you, Alexis which is the mic you want you want to um can i the micro macro can i steal it or is that going to be your answer go ahead no no it's not my answer go <laughs> um, ahead. um so something that alexis talked about uh that i really love is the difference between the macro which is the larger activism right which is a very good container for your financial resources your uh time and your energy in terms of um you know anger and really like the thing that fuels you to show up right and that and and organizations are a wonderful container for that right and then on the micro that for me is still 
the front lines of this yeah. battle. Um, Alexis said, I let people get to know me um, when, when she was explaining to me who she was. And I, I still get really um, like, I'm so grateful for you, Alexis. Um, she said, I let people get to know me and I let them get to know my family. And then in getting to know us, they find out what we believe and what we value and what we care about and who we are. And, and then it sucks for them because they like us because we're kind of great. <laughs> you know, like just That's like, amazing. and they are like, your family's amazing. Like just like loving. And I mean, I wish if your car's going to break down, I highly recommend you break down in front of Alexis's house because they will take mind. you, they will not ask you who you voted for. They will just take you in and feed you and get you to the gas station. You know, they're like wonderful. Um, and so that is something also that I find restores me in terms of the ability to slay the dragon and get up in the morning and love again is I use as much of my energy as I can to be a safe space for people who disagree with me and for people who will have the courage to name what they don't know and ask questions. Because in go. my experience, if people feel like you're not going to judge them for their questions, you're not going to tell them they're monsters because they don't know or because of what they currently believe. If you give people, if you, I know lead with love is overused, but whatever it means to you, if you give people the opportunity to feel like you are standing with them in their humanity, just casually in the grocery store recommending products like you do, Nick, <laughs> right? And you can- Have you tried eggs? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like buy the, these organic <laughs> eggs or my family loves these. All, how do you feel How do you feel about um, transgender youth? Um, you, you know, uh, but if you can find Love a that. way to have those conversations, that has been transformative, not just for the people that I talk to, right? It's not like I'm changing people. They're also right. changing me. There's a beautiful yep. exchange mm -hmm. that takes place. Um, mm -hmm. So that's something that I would say too, which is if you are a person who lives in Tennessee and you have not yet, if you're sitting, if you're just sitting and you're frustrated and I hate this and everybody sucks and you're just assuming that there are all these hateful people everywhere, I highly recommend trying to remember that we're all in this together and that most yep. people are good people and actually talking to people in your communities and letting them, if you have all the information, if you got to where you are, and I promise I'm landing this plane, but if you got to where you are in your beliefs by having information, then be a place where other people can come gently and safely and receive yep. that information. And, and, and that really is a thing. And then the thing it does for me that's totally selfish is it gives me hope because there is nothing like having someone the look in some, on someone's face when they finally ask the questions they haven't been able to ask anyone at their church, anyone at work, anyone in their community, because they're so afraid to even be curious, right? They're so afraid to want to know. They're so afraid to be ostracized. And they ask me and they get answers and you watch them light up. That's the shine bit for me. You watch them start to light up and you watch them start to think for themselves and you watch them start to go, oh, that never made sense to me before. Even something as simple as explaining to someone the difference between gender identity and sexual orientation, which yep. people conflate all the time, right? The people who are yep. screaming groomer, groomer, don't even know the difference. Tell them the difference and suddenly they go, oh, that, oh, oh, I didn't, oh, that makes sense. And it, it reassures me that I am surrounded by people 
who do have good hearts and who, when you give them the information, will be the people that you want to be standing next to while we go on this journey to make change. India is a crazy diverse place. Mm -hmm. Um, I know we all kind of look brown, but there are more religions in India Mm -hmm. in a concentrated place than there are anywhere in the world. There is more language, uh, you know, more cultural differences. Um, Amongst my friends, like my South Asian friends that live here in America, between us, everyone has a different cultural experience. Like we have different, we, like our weddings are totally different. Our food is totally different, our whatever. And that's here. <laughs> so, you know, if you go to India, it's so beautiful to be able to, it's such a privilege to be able to go to these communities and learn about these different cultures, understand how we have to shift the work to meet the needs of those cultures and, and, and get to do it. And so that only happens bit by bit. You know, it doesn't happen a mass. It can, um, but... For, for the work we do, uh, we really believe that it happens bit by bit. One of the things that struck me, I've, I've been working with, been to dozens of countries, worked with hundreds if not thousands of nonprofits directly and indirectly to do this, that, and the other. And I'm quite just over most nonprofit work because there's a lot of fudging the numbers. There's a lot of oh, it's so frustrating how much money goes to waste and how this and how that. And it just seems like, why are we, like we could be doing so much more and we could be doing so much better if there was integrity and if there was. And so one of the things that struck me as I looked at the website and looked at these numbers, right again, I totally agree. It's not about the numbers, but let's use the numbers just to talk a little bit more about the work. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when I looked at the different, you know, I want you to break down, not not every, Mm -hmm. every number, but like break down some of the numbers, these 5 million lives affected what I noticed when I looked at all the programs that you all do, that you all engage in, they're not, um, like it's easy to say, hey, we passed out, you know, uh, a million meals and that's a million lives affected. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, but also no, because three hours later that person was hungry again. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, it was direct impact, they got a meal, but yeah, like, are, are we, is that really a million, you know? Um, and when I looked, I mean, everything from like sewing, education, job training, all the all the programs that you all, and we're going to get to, you know, pledge your period and all that. Like these are, these are, these are programs that have the potential to change the outcome of this person's life. Yes. And as you pointed out, like not just their life, but because this change happened in their lives, they're going to affect people more positively. That ripple effect is also, this 5 million turns into 100 million right? Or a billion in 25 years. Mm. Incredible. So break down, um, yeah, that 5 million number, or just rather go into the programs that you all do. And you've already mentioned sewing and a couple others, Yeah, but just kind of give a, yeah, give a, a, a picture of what these programs look like, what the work looks like. Absolutely. So we have, uh, we work in three verticals and the verticals that we work in are health, livelihood, and menstrual equity. Health is around bringing healthcare screening and access to the most remote places. So basically we create these like pop-up health camps in these communities, whether it be gynecology, kids' health camps, health and hygiene screening and training um, and education, um, you know, diabetes camps, et cetera, et cetera. We have about 12 of these different health camps. 
um, where we go out into these communities and we do screening, assessment, and triage. We are not a hospital. We are not medical professionals. So we then say to them, you know, did you know that you can go to this hospital or you need to be treated for this? You need to go here. And a lot of there's just so much misinformation in these communities. You know, some of them don't know that they can get free care at a local hospital. So we do some of that education as well. Like, hey, do you need transportation help to get to this hospital, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of the, the health, the vertical that we work, the operate in. The, um, and the health vertical is our most expensive because it's all money out. There's sure. no yeah. ecosystem there. Yeah, so yeah. That, but it, and it's also repeat, repeat touch. So we try to go to the same community enough times where people then start developing a habit for, oh, I should be checking my skin and I should be checking this. So that, that ends up happening, right? The second vertical is livelihood. So we have a variety of different programs from sewing to beautician classes, computers, et cetera, et cetera. And these courses are a really big commitment. They're three months. And they, the people that take these classes, uh, almost, almost all women and girls, but there are some men that take these classes, um, have to pay something to take these classes. Now, it's a really nominal amount, but significant enough. Gives them ownership. Gives them ownership. And the reason we do this is because, and by the way, if they can't afford it truly, at the end of the class, we give the money back to them. Um, but the reason we hold on to the money is because a lot of these women are living in their mother-in-law's house, their husband's house, and have to answer to their mother-in-law's. Mm. And so if they say, oh, I already paid for this class, the motivation and the incentive to let that wow. woman go actually yep. fulfill the course is much higher. We've experimented in several villages where we did them for free, where we did them paid. We changed, the, we like checked the elasticity of the price. And we've come to the conclusion that asking people to pay a nominal fee for these courses encourages them to finish the course. And if they really need the money back, we give it back. And... Um, the courses really are about the skill, sure. But at the end of the day, it's really about cultivating dignity um, for the people that we serve. And, you know, we do exit interviews for everyone that takes our class. And for a lot of the people that come to these classes, yes, they learned skill. They like, they learned a skill. But then they we say like, what's something out of sewing or out of the beautician class that you learned in this class? A lot of them say like the most valuable thing that that happened to them was they made a friend. You know, wow. so cool. they're going from their father's house to their husband's house in a new village with a community that is completely dictated by their in-laws. And this is the first time that they get to engage with somebody that is their friend. One of my favorite things to do is to find, I literally do this online sometimes, I'll go find the lists of the happiest countries on the earth. Sure. And I will go figure out why. And it usually ends up being, a lot of it is around, maybe not trust around government, but government is going to help them and take care of them, right? If you look at the happiest countries, there's some sort of socialized health care. They are getting, they're getting unlimited paid time off. You know, if, if, if a mother has a baby, they get a year off paid and the father gets six months paid, whatever, you know, whatever the case may be, they're getting help. They know that if something goes wrong, 
they're going to get help from their neighbors, from the government, from this and that. And here we don't have that. There's 500,000 people a year that go bankrupt because of medical bills. There are people that are sitting right now within a mile of where we're sitting right now, should go to the doctor or the hospital right now, and they won't because they're scared shitless of whatever bill is on the other end of it. Yeah. Like that creates unhappiness. Like you mm-hmm. can't thrive if you're always worried about, well, am I going to be on the subway and some overzealous ex-military dude's going to choke some guy out because it made him scared? Or am I, you know, if, am I going to get sick? Am I going to get hit by, am I going to get, is, am I going to get in a scuffle with the, like, right? Like you're just, it, it's a really difficult to thrive when you don't trust sort of what's happening. Am I, am my kid going to go to school and there's going to be a school shooting there tomorrow, right? Like, obviously there are some things we can't prevent, but so much, so many things that are preventable, we're not preventing here. And I think it's leading toward unhappiness of all kinds, you know, distrust in the government, distrust in each other. There are so many people that I don't, I would love to trust them. I would love to be in relationship with them. I would love to get along with them, but I can't, or I, I won't, I won't do it. Well, and we ha- can't ignore the 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 role that uh, social media yes. and mainstream media play in this, where uh, mainstream media profits out of outrage. So the more that they can foster and foment outrage, the more clicks they get, the more views they get, the more advertising they get. So it's not in their best interest to just be reporting facts and news in a cogent, sane way. It's in their best interest to create more and more division. So, and this is how the echo chamber of social media works as well. I'm sure everyone is, is well aware of this, but it's really hard to be contemptuous of someone that you're sitting sitting six feet away from. Yes. So from a distance, so much. you know, people in red state Kansas can be furious at inner city San Francisco and people in, you know, ivory tower Los Angeles can be furious at red staters in Alabama. But if we sat down together more, if we listened to each other more, um, breathed together more, uh, there could be a great deal of of bonds that were created because it's not just trust in government, but it's it's trust in community. Yes, and and bonds and connection of community that provide the true true happiness. So something that we quote on the show and something that I quoted in my book as well is the Grant study from Harvard University. This very famous study that followed 300 uh, men for 80 years and just examined one thing and one thing only, what gives them a best quality of life. And they followed marriages and divorces and sickness and health and religion and not religion and work and, and, and income and all of these different factors about well-being. And if you boil the entire grant study down, the longest, most intensive study around this, there have been multiple books written about the study, it just comes down to one thing only, and that's connection. Mm. So bliss, happiness, joy, meaning comes from interhuman communication and connection and community. And uh, that's, again, what we are missing and uh, what we need to try and build, and you know, for the let's give a damn people, it's uh, there's a there's a section of my book where I have one of the seven pillars of a spiritual revolution, and I think it's a really important one. And it's don't just protest, build something. Mm. And because we live in a culture of protest, right? Um, for instance, the the unfortunate uh, homeless 
mentally imbalanced man on the subway who had been arrested 40 times previously who was choked to death. Like, um, it's easy to protest this and it's easy and both sides are protesting it. You know, mm -hmm. they're saying this poor guy was defending himself and other women in the subway car when he was trying to, yeah, he went too far, but he was, he was defending people and, you know, they, they're protesting that, right? And they're protesting a woke culture that is claiming racism. And the other side is saying this guy, this zealous military guy just killed a guy, you know, and he's, he's like a, he's like cop and he's racist. And, and there's going to be shouting and there's going to be angst and there's going to be tweets and there's going to be some marches. And the guy's either going to be found guilty or not guilty, probably not guilty because he was, you know, in self-defense. And uh, there'll be outrage about that or there won't be outrage about that. Mm. And then it'll all go away. But what will we have done around the mental health issues? Mm. What will we have done in America's big cities to take care of this problem of the correlation between house unhoused mental health and drug addiction and this fentanyl epidemic what will what will the average person have done because it's a, easy to protest it's so easy you can send out some tweets you can even go to a march for an hour or two you can write all your friends you can fill out some petitions big deal you know the protest plays a very important role in civil life and it should be acknowledged and the American civil rights movement wouldn't have happened without mm -hmm. uh, extensive protest. We see this about George Floyd and the Me Too movement. It plays a very important role, but we Americans often stop there. And guess what? 100%. Building coalition, working in community, in consultation uh, is really hard. It's really, really difficult. Uh, people often leave it because it's so challenging. But that's where the important work is to be done. I find that, you know, a lot of the actions that we take, they usually have something to do with our personal stories and our personal experiences. 21 years ago, um, my, uh, so my mom comes from an indigenous community called Wayu. And there are about half a million people that live in the border between Venezuela and Colombia. And uh, my mom comes from this area. It's a matriarchal community. And during that time, one kid was dying a day through UNICEF. Mm. You know, this was in 2002. Uh, my mom actually was able to go to school. She comes from this area. And she was able to go to school because my uncle, Tio Nerio, um, worked in telegraphy and sent her away so she could become a teacher. And in order to become a teacher, she will have to teach someone to write and read. And she taught my grandmother. Um, many years later, this is 21 years ago, I get a call from my mother that says uh, that my uncle had passed. And he said before he passed that, he, that we should not forget about the YU. And mm. I saw my mom being so devastated I thought I have to do something about it. So I started digging and found out that extreme drought and climate change have caused water, clean water almost to be inaccessible. And the same thing with access to farming, you know, created food insecurity. Um, and what I have found through UNICEF. So because my parents were educators, are educators actually, um, I thought, why not we start with a little preschool of 30 kids? Because this will guarantee that the kids from zero to six years old, at least 30, will have two meals a day. And that was the beginning. And then after a few years, 
We had about 7,500 children with different schools that we get got help. Um, but what we didn't know is that we were getting prepared for what was to come. You know, I'm sure you're aware of the refugee crisis in my country. You know, about seven and a half million people have fled. And that has made that area on the border even more extreme in its needs. Um, and about four years ago, I, I received a call from Jose Andres from Wall Central Kitchen. Yes. And he said, Patricia, we have all this food on the Colombian side. If we, can, if we get it to you, can you get it to Venezuela? So we then started bringing one ton, two ton, three tons of food, four tons of food. And today, four years later, all 4,000 kids are getting, it depends the week, but anywhere between four and 14,000 kids are getting food every, every week, depending how, of how much we receive. But over 71,000 people have received food through these vegetables that come from this organization named Acceso, wow. led by Fran Justra, that are... It's a sustain, sustainable agriculture on the other side. It's there in Colombia, in Haiti, in Salvador, now Mexico. And a lot of these farmers are Venezuelan refugees on the Colombian side. So we pick up these vegetables on the border. By the time they travel to us, 1,200 kilometers. And then they come to us and they go in so many different communities. And that was just with the food. Then we received, uh, through, then we met Anne Lee from CORE. And Anne has become, and just core has become really a pillar for Wayutaya. And then introduced us to Center for Disaster Philanthropy. And they gave, gave us money to build a well. And now 27,000 people have had f clean water. Amazing. And then she, and through the CGI community, we also met uh, Direct Relief. And they, they started sending medicine and supplies, and over 200,000 people have received all over Venezuela medicine and supplies. And it has been one after the next after the next. But you know, and this is something I spoke about it just at the session, um, we know that humanitarian aid ends, right? Because yep. it has something else is yep. happening in another country. So what is our job now? And this is why CORE has become so uh, such an important part of Wayutaya. We know that we have to become sustainable. We have to turn humanitarian aid into sustainable humanitarian aid. And I have no doubt that we are going to achieve it because for many reasons. Number one, I think we're, the team is ready. It would have not happened a few years sure, ago. The yeah. team has learned to be accountable, to operate the community. And number two, because um, because indigenous communities, which is you know the Wayu community, um, we it doesn't matter how many cultures have disappeared, mm. how many wars have past, indigenous communities have always managed to remain. Yep. And that is because for generations we have been taught always you only take what you need, you share and you put it back in the land. Just like, you know, just like my, my mom did by teaching her teaching my grandmother to write and read. And this is and now, and now we can look back and say, yes, wow, we have helped over a million people. But the real help starts with us, you know, as individuals, because it makes you think, wow, every little action that we take can have a ripple effect mm. that can affect yep. positive change. Just like my uncle did by helping my mom and sending my mom to school. The last seven or eight minutes have been like a masterclass in how to do things right. I, I, I mean that. You sort of summed up. There's so many things. We could talk for an hour on what you mm -hmm. just shared. But a couple things that point out is, one, 
you saw a problem close to home, right? And you, you tackled that. I feel like that's a big thing that we need to talk about for a second because at Let's Give a Damn, one of the things we're trying to help people become fully human and to live ethical, sustainable, absurdly ethical and sustainable lives. Trying to figure out how, like, and really trying to convince people, every single one of you, every single one of you, every single one of you have something to do. Yeah. And the reason that not everybody is acting today, everybody we're going to pass in the street after we leave here today, the reason most of them aren't doing it is because it feels so big and so, yes. it's just so big. Look at in Ukraine mm-hmm. and this and that. And they get paralyzed mm-hmm. versus something like this, some version of, hey, what's happening in my own backyard? Yes. What, what could I tackle right now? What mm-hmm. could I do right now that will... Uh, 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 affect the people, places, and things around me. Yes, we should figure out how we can help in Ukraine and all these different places. But there are things happening right now. For you, it was the YU people. And for anybody listening right now, I hope that something came up that was, I'm not talking, it doesn't have to be huge, just something that you're just tackling. You can begin right now because it's so close. You know about these people, you know how they function, how they work, what needs to happen here because it's so part of who you are. Yeah. It's so it's so easy to get overwhelmed. You know, just as you say, with with the news, with social media, it is paralyzing. Um, I find that you are probably listening to this and thinking, I want to do something, but but I can't. I don't have any money or I, I don't know where to start. Well, I would say if you have a call to really do something, just I guess the first step is what is it that you care about? You might care about the elderly, or you might care about maybe you are helping. Uh, 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 maybe you're helping someone who's disabled. Maybe you're helping uh, I, whatever it is. You might love the the, the animals. You might love. You want to save the planet. There, there are so many different causes. Right. Just find it in your heart. What is it that you care about? And then just start very slowly with step one, which is at a very small scale. You know, I sometimes think think that, I don't know if it's something negative about me, but I don't, when things get too big, I run away. I over, I get overwhelmed. I just, I say, what, no, no, what? That's human, no, that's it's human. Too, I, it's too big. But some people have the gift to mm. think big, you yeah. know? And I'm not saying that things cannot turn big. Like when I see what Wayutaya has accomplished so, so far. But trust me, I've held Wayutaya very little for many, many years because I get overwhelmed and also because I don't know how to do it. Mm. And to actually accept that we don't know how to do it yes. and have the and be humble enough to say, I don't know how to how you do how to do it. Can you teach me? And if you can, find the people around you that can help you and can guide you. And I'm not talking about financially. I'm talking about people that are wiser than you. And and I, you know, and now, now I'm going off on a tangent, but go for it. If you have someone in your life who doesn't inspire you, you don't need to be around that person. Mm. That is key. You want to have a successful and inspiring life, you have to start by surrounding yourself with people that inspire you. Anytime I'm ha- experiencing like a lot of joy, I immediately start seeing videos in my head or seeing oh, images yeah. and feeling it and feeling it. And 
during the floods, like one of the things that came to me was this, I just kept hearing in my head, like, please don't forget to tell our love stories. Please don't forget to tell our love mm. stories and like the importance of creating love stories and engaging with love stories and telling our love stories and and holding on to hope and choosing joy and and rest. And because at the end of the day, oppressors need us in our fatigue. They need us in our apathy. That's, that's like when that's when the darkest so things happen. So it's like if 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 you choose to just go numb and to dissociate and to leave your body, then you're falling into the trap. You have to be here now. We yeah. have to choose to feel the things that our body is demanding us to feel and then alchemize it and then feel it and then be like, how can I use this and channel it into something? Like all of the rage and the anger and the sadness and the pain that I've been feeling for the last several months, I've literally been channeling into storytelling and work and art. And I'm, and by the way, like a, a, a way to, to do this that I have found is really engaging with art that people make in times like this. Like I started a community playlist on Spotify called The Great Recalibration. I've been listening to it nonstop. The, it's, if I do say so myself, the best playlist I've ever listened to. And that's we'll just a to testament it. to, um, I, I literally said to Adam, I was like, do you want to know the community that we've cultivated with At Your Service? Go listen to this playlist because every single song there is uh, was suggested by somebody and it's just revolution 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 yeah. and in the most spiritual loving like powerful way and I was just thinking like you know maybe part of the grief that we're experiencing right now and the sadness that we're experiencing right now is this realization that we will most likely never see the world that we really want to live in like we won't live no. to see that yep. but we are also living in the world that all of the revolutionaries before us didn't get to see. They, and they would never have dreamed this. No, but but we wouldn't have this without them. Yes. So sure. it's just yep. kind of like this grief where we have to let go of the outcome and we have to let go of wanting, like being like, I'm only going to do something if I'm going to see the change. I'm too small. I'm too small. I'm too, of course you're not. You're not too small because you're not just you. You are all of us. We are all connected. We are all interconnected. We need each other. Do your freaking part, man. Like sign up for your role. Yep. You know what it is. And in order to do that, you need to bear witness. You need to feel. You need to alchemize your feelings. You need to consume art. You need to witness stories. You need to tell the truth on yourself. You need to ask hard questions. You need to put everything on the line because otherwise Preach. you're not living a life worth living to me. I'm like, this life is only worth living if you're gonna put everything on the line to like be part of humanity. Preach. We're uh, in a church right now. We, so. are, we are, we are in a church. <laughs> Brian Andreas's quote always comes to mind when this conversation is happening. Um, anyone can slay a dragon, try waking up every morning and loving the world all over again. That takes wow. a hero. Oh, that gave me chills. Right? Like, Anybody can slay a dragon. First of all, that statement is like, no, everybody can't. But when you think about yeah. how small slaying a dragon would be comparing to getting up this, we have maps in front of us. Yeah. And like to get up in front of this yeah. with all the stuff going on in our country, elsewhere, and keep loving this <laughs> absolute shit show of a planet that we get to live on. Yeah. That's a real hero. I just posted this clip of James Baldwin on my page and I never like post these like archival clips, but I needed, I just needed to because I needed it for myself and it opens with love has never been a popular movement. Yeah. And I really like, and he says, love 
has never been a popular movement and no one has ever really wanted to be free. And I was like, ouch. So powerful. Ouch. Because that would mean you holding yourself accountable. Love, like, you know, we grow up with these sayings and I've been thinking about this so much, like, love is the answer, love is the answer, all we want is love, peace, love, blah, 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 all of it. And like, we never properly defined love. We just didn't because love is like, is actually a revolutionary act to see the one in front of you as yourself. To say that 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 is a, I kept thinking about this. Like I, I, I have been uh, talking to my friend Rupi Kaur. She's an amazing poet, and uh, it's been just, it's been really hard. And in these moments of hard, I feel like the, mm. my friendships have really just gotten so much stronger. Love that. And she was having a really hard time, and I said to her, you know, I, I've been thinking about like. A lot, I'm sure many of you who are listening are familiar with Bisan, the journalist in Gaza mm-hmm. who's been documenting every single day. And she is literally my hero. And I just had this moment where I was like, why is she there and I'm here? Like, why are why are we, and not just like me and her, but just on a globe, like why are certain people, like their lives are, their life experience is one that feels like so painful and ours is here and what, and I noticed in my language that that was, that even, even in my own language, I was separating us because like, it isn't actually until like, I realized, well, it's not that I'm here and she's there. I'm also there. Like we are also, we are her. We are, we are all these people. And the reason that this, this pain is also so visceral, I think for so many of us is we're also witnessing, especially if your family comes from a, a land that has been colonized and brutalized, like what happened to our families? Like I, every time I see an airstrike bring one of those buildings down and I've lost family in a U.S. airstrike, I just, I, I, literally lose words. And I'm like, that's what it looked like. Like you cannot, that's what it sounded like. That's what it felt like. Like, It's incomprehensible. And so I'm just like, but oh my gosh, most of the world experiences this. And that's why we have these conversations. We're feeling all this pain, but I also am like, we are still like some of the luckiest, most privileged people in the entire world. And so there is no excuse. There's no excuse for no. us to not be a part of the like collective healing and liberation of all people. Like we have that responsibility. We do. Friends, thank you so much for showing up and for spending some time with my friends and me today. I am so honored to know these incredible humans. And I hope after this episode, you'll go listen to the full conversations if you haven't already. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And please show up in the coming weeks. We have so many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins-Harn, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda, and you can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. Keep giving a damn. I love you all. Bye for now.